I mentioned earlier, our Sunday morning sermon series right now is called The Character of God. This is week six. Uh, A lot of you have given me uh, positive feedback just about taking time to think about these attributes of God. We're looking at nine of them in this particular stretch. There's a lot of them we're not talking about. Uh, And as I've heard from some of you over the last few weeks, I've thought this could be something we come back and revisit uh, later down the road. We could do another nine weeks or another 10 weeks or another however many weeks talking about God and his character. We're asking the question, who is he? And what is he like? And how are we supposed to think about him? And these are the nine that we've been discussing or that we're working our way through in this series. He is holy, he's self-existent, he's sovereign, he is good, he's faithful. This morning we're going to talk about God's power, his omnipotence, he is powerful, and then in the weeks to come, his patience, his wrath, and his love. One of the guys I've quoted throughout this series with some regularity is a guy named A.W. Tozer, and I've quoted mostly from this book, The Knowledge of the Holy, when I've referred to Tozer. I I would just throw out to you, this is a great place to start. As we've gone through this Sunday morning series, if you say, hey, I'd like to read about this, I'd like to study about this, this book is a great place to start. He talks about 20 attributes of God. It's a very short book, so it's not overwhelming to pick it up. The chapters are really short. He gives you a ton of scripture references so that if you like to, you can have knowledge of the holy in one hand and the holy Bible in the other hand, and you can flip through and fact check him and and see what his references are. It's a really, really good reference. I do want to share this quote with you this morning. Tozer says, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God, and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping people. This is a problem when you look at churches and you see worship that is not what it ought to be. Tozer wrote these words about 70 years ago. 70 years ago. There were no electric guitars on the stage 70 years ago. You understand that? There were very few drum sets on the stage 70 years ago. It was a a much more traditional approach to music. But he looked around and he said, there's a problem with worship. And the problem with worship is that we have presented people with a low, ignoble God unworthy of their thoughts or their worship. We've not given them a God that deserves to be worshiped, Therefore, they're not worshiping. And over the years, what many people have tried to do when they've seen the same problem is to just make the experience of worship more exciting. So we're going to add this instrument or that instrument, or we're going to turn the volume up a little bit. Or some people, as the years have gone on, have done the opposite. They've moved backward and they said, no, All those changes are the problem, and what we need to do is go back to a simpler, more basic approach without all the other stuff. We've missed the real central issue. We've spent decades worrying about lights or no lights or this instrument or that instrument or this kind of worship leader or that kind of worship leader or this style of song or that style of song. We've been treating the symptoms rather than the actual sickness. It really doesn't matter when it comes to God's people gathering together to worship if you do it in this sort of musical setting or if you come back on a Wednesday night and we sing hymns out of a hymn book with a piano. That's really neither here nor there. 
if you want to see God's people worship, you don't just try to jazz it up or make it sentimental for them. You give them a God who is worthy of being worshipped. You don't give them a God who is low and ignoble and unworthy of their thoughts. You give them a big God, and you help them to think big thoughts about God. And when you do that, worship takes care of itself. And so this morning our goal is to leave with a high view of God, specifically as we think about God being powerful. God is powerful. And so we'll start with a a few definitions. God is omnipotent. That means, or that is, he is all-powerful. There's two Latin roots in this word, omni meaning all, potens meaning powerful. He is all-powerful. He's not simply strong. He's not simply powerful. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. In the Old Testament and the New, the title for God that communicates this idea most clearly is the title Almighty. He's the Almighty. In the Bible, that title is only used of God. That description is only applied to God. No one else in the Bible is called Almighty. God is Almighty. That is, He has all power. And what I put on the notes and what I'll put on the screen are the first and the last biblical occurrence of that title, Almighty. In between, there's about 50 more. But here's the first one and the last one. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Abram, this is one of the things you're going to need to know about me. I am all-powerful. I'm omnipotent. I'm the Almighty. Revelation 21, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. From eternity past to eternity future, God is omnipotent. He's the Almighty. And the Bible describes this in a number of different ways. One of the ways that the Bible describes God's power is by talking about God's arm. You read this a lot in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about God's arm. And I'll give you one example. Job 40 Verse 9, this is the end of the book of Job. Job has grumbled and complained. God has finally showed up, and he's put Job in his place with a relentless series of rhetorical questions, none of which Job had an answer for. And one of the things God asks Job is this, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Job, do you have an arm like God. When Job heard that question, he was not supposed to look down and do a bicep flex. That's not the idea. When I say that God is powerful and God's arm is powerful, maybe what comes into your head is like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like not the the current old Terminator, but like the young Terminator, the bodybuilder Terminator. At one point, he had the biggest biceps on earth, slightly larger than mine. I mean, he was, he was jacked. Maybe think about Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, uh, the professional wrestler, you need to take your vitamins, you need to say your prayers, and he would talk about his 24-inch pythons. Maybe you think about this movie. This is a great movie. Over the top, Sylvester Stallone. Who has seen this movie? Put your hand up. You are my favorite church members. If your hand is in the air, 
If your hand's not in the air, you just went down a notch in my book. Lincoln Hawk, look, I would dare to say, I would dare to say that of all the arm wrestling movies in the history of the world, all of them, I don't know how many there are, but all of them, this is the best one. It's an arm wrestling movie. He's a trucker, and he's got this weight thing rigged up in his truck, and he, he lifts weights while he's driving, and he goes to Vegas, and he gets in this arm wrestling competition, and Terry Funk, one of my favorite professional wrestlers, makes a cameo in the movie. There's so many things to love about it, but listen, when you think about God's arm, it's just a faint comparison. It's the Bible describing God as if he were kind of like us to help us understand something about him. It's not literally saying up in heaven somewhere there's this arm and it's really, really big. What the biblical authors are saying to you when they talk about God's arm is he's powerful, he's strong, he's omnipotent, he's the almighty. All of these images helping you to think about God and his power. One more thing to add to this. Because God is omnipotent, nothing he does is difficult, and his power does not diminish. You can really spend some time thinking about this. He's never done anything that was difficult. He's never come to the end of a task and said, whew, I didn't know how that was going to work out. He's never come to the end of a task and just said, oh, I am spent. Even in creation, after he creates everything that exists, the Bible says he rests. It's not because he's tired. It's because he's done. He's finished. So he stops, and he sets a pattern for you and me. Nothing he does is difficult. His power does not diminish. The prophet Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I don't know about you, but I grow weary. I've never fainted in my life. But there's times where I just think, I'm exhausted. I'll just give you a recent example. Not yesterday, but the Saturday before, a week ago yesterday. We sort of had an off day as a Saturday. We didn't have a, a lot to do as a family, I should say. And at some point, Clayton piped up my son, and he said, hey, I want to go hit balls. I want to go to the park and hit baseballs. And in his mind, that means get the tee, get the big five-gallon bucket of balls, let's go to the park. No one had anything else to do, so we all piled in the car. We went down here to Gonzales. We set the tee up. This is really easy work if you're a dad, okay? You set the tee up, you get the bucket of balls, you pick up a ball, you put it on the tee, your kid hits the ball, you do that 25 times till the bucket's empty, and then you hand the bucket to your kid and say, now go pick the balls up. He goes and picks the balls up, and you supervise, and it's really not that difficult. So we did that, and he hit a few rounds. And then he said, hey, I want you to pitch him now. I said, okay, I can pitch him. And uh, so I got out there with the bucket, and I threw a couple of rounds of pitching balls, and he hit most of them, and he'd go pick them up, and I'd help him pick them up. And so we went through that several times. Remember, we're all there at the park. And so then my little girls are watching this, and they say, Hey, we want to hit too. 
So I say, well, come on, get the bat and let's go. I'll pitch you the balls. And so they each hit a few rounds of pitching the balls, and Emma was there. And Emma said, I bet I can hit better than all of them. I'm the biggest in the family. You might as well give me a turn. So she got up there, and she hit a few. And not to be outdone, after we'd gone through all the kids, my wife said, I'm up next. Give me the bat. I'm going to show them how it's done. So they all go through several rounds of this pitching, and I'm, you know, it's not like I'm Nolan Ryan out there. You're just throwing balls. It's fine. I wake up last Sunday, and I come to church, and you may notice that as I preach, I hold my Bible in my left hand, throw with my right hand, Bible in my left hand, so I was really okay. Then we went down the hall to the greeter lunch, and we all ate, the greeters and the ushers, and I got up to give a few instructions, and down there, I don't have one of these fancy little things, you know modern Garth Brooks earpiece thing. We just have a microphone with a wire. So I take the microphone and I'm holding it like this with my right hand and I'm in the middle of talking to the ushers and the greeters and all I can think about is what is wrong with my arm? Why is my bicep cramping because I'm holding this microphone? What is happening? And I don't know what I said at the greeter or usher lunch. You'll have to forgive me. If it was incoherent, all I was thinking about is my arm's going to fall off holding this microphone. I get weary. You grow weary. The Almighty has never had that experience. Never. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He's powerful. Not just a little. He's all powerful. Nothing he's ever attempted to do has fallen short. He's never woken up the next day and said, I need an ice pack or a heating pad or an Advil. He's never needed to, to, to carb load or or replenish his electrolytes or anything like that. He does not faint and he does not grow weary. He's omnipotent. Now, before we move on, I want to acknowledge a few questions relating to God's power. Okay, two questions that people ask as you talk about God being all-powerful. Question number one, skeptics, skeptics question God's power with silly word games. There's people who don't like this idea that God is all-powerful and they try to make you and I look silly for believing it. And so they say things like this. I gave you one example on your notes and on the screen. Can God make a mountain so big he can't move it? Well, either way, God loses, right? If he can't make that mountain, then you look at him and you say, well, I guess he's not all-powerful. There's something he can't do. But if he makes the mountain and then he moves it, he loses either way. It's just a no-win situation. And there's all sorts of examples of this. I had an English professor in, uh, at WT when I was a, an undergrad student, and he used to, to throw these things out to us all the time. He thought he was so smart. He thought he was so, so funny. He would say things like this, can God make a round square? And you would say, well, no, that doesn't make sense. And you'd say, well, then he's not all-powerful. If he was all-powerful, he could do all things. He would say, can God create an uncreated person? And you say, I don't know what that means. And he says, ah, well, if he can't do it, then he must not be all-powerful. Can God create a person who could keep a secret even God wouldn't know? And again, you just sort of scratch your head at that and you don't have much of an answer. Some people really think they're onto something here. 
my professor in college, he used to brag that when he was a young child, he would go to Sunday school and he would ask these sorts of questions and the teacher just had absolutely no answer for him. And it was proof that what we believe is just sort of a silly thing and we really can't answer difficult questions. To which I would just say, stop. This is nonsense. It's nonsense. Why in the world would we judge the creator of the universe with nonsense. I mean, no, no offense to fourth grade boys, if there's any in the room. You ever just put a bunch of fourth grade boys together and listen to them talk? It's just it's nonsense. Girls are no different. I have mostly girls in my house. You put a bunch of girls together, it's just nonsense. I, I know in my family, if we go on a long car ride, there are certain people in my family that don't need to sit by each other because the giggling and the laughing and the poking and the prodding, it just turns, it's just, it doesn't have any rhyme or any reason. It's just nonsense. That's what this stuff is. It's nonsense. And I don't mean to be dismissive to anybody who's really wrestling with the character of God. I just mean to say this stuff is ridiculous. And taking our little creature brains and coming up with nonsensical questions and then thinking that somehow we've trapped God between a philosophical rock and a theological hard place has really forced his hand and proven a point, it's just silliness and it shouldn't bother you. The Bible says there are things God cannot do. Does not mean he's not all-powerful. The book of James says he cannot be tempted with evil. It's not possible. Doesn't mean he's not omnipotent. The book of Hebrews says God cannot lie. It's not possible that he would break his oath or his word. It doesn't somehow limit his power. Right? To suggest so is just silliness. Last week we talked about God's faithfulness, and I told you, first and foremost, God is faithful. He is true to himself. He will not and he cannot act contrary to his nature. That doesn't mean he's not all-powerful. We don't take the attributes of God and pit them against each other as if they give us some sort of loophole in what we end up believing about God. All these sorts of nonsensical, logically uh, mistaken ideas, none of those things prove anything about God, and so you don't need to be bothered by them. Now for a second question, more serious issue, those who suffer. People who suffer are often tempted to question if God's power and his knowledge and his goodness are real. You find yourself in a situation like this. Some of you have been in situations like this already in 2020. Some of you are in a, a situation that you would describe as suffering even this morning. And you look at the character of God and you find yourself sort of wrestling with this dilemma. If he really can do anything, he's all-powerful, and if he knows everything, past, present, future, and if he's good and he cares about his people, why in the world am I in this spot that I'm in? That can be a difficult question to answer. We're talking about the problem of evil, essentially. We're talking about why do evil and bad things happen in the world? Why does suffering mark so much of our human experience? 
If God really is good, we said that a few weeks ago, and he knows the beginning from the end, all things, and he can do whatever he wants to do, he's all-powerful, why then do we find ourselves suffering? The first thing I want to say is that's a difficult question for every worldview. Sometimes people want to poke fun at the Christian worldview to suggest that we don't have a good answer for that. I'm just telling you that if you listen to the Christian answer and you think it's not satisfactory, listen to what other worldviews say. For example, talk to the people who say that there is no God. There's no God. All we are, all of life, all of existence, everything, all of human history is just the result of chemistry and chance and time. Throw it all in a bowl, mix it together, this is what you get. If that's your worldview, that there is no transcendent God outside of our existence, and everything that happens is simply the result of chemical processes, you have no basis for talking about evil or suffering. None whatsoever. All you can say to the person who's hurting is, you know, this is really just chemistry. We can explain the whole thing with molecules and atoms and reactions and time and chance and this is how we got here and this is what's going on in your brain and those things you think you're feeling, you're really not feeling. It's all just sort of a naturalistic process that began to unfold trillions and trillions of years ago. How's that for an answer? When you're suffering. You and I know better. We face things in life that we know are more than just chemistry. Things that hurt, things that are painful, things where you suffer, things where you step back and you question the character of God on on these issues. Some people have tried to cut the knot in this way. Some people have looked at that list and said, well, maybe we account for all the bad stuff by simply saying that God doesn't know everything, specifically that he doesn't know the future. He's a really good guesser, but because the future hasn't happened yet, he just doesn't know and he's doing the best he can, so cut him some slack. If you've read the Bible, that doesn't really seem to line up with what the Bible says about God knowing the beginning from the end and knowing all things and seeing all things. Other people have looked at it and said, well, maybe he's not good. Maybe he's up there, he's all-powerful, this being, and maybe he knows everything, this creature, but maybe he really doesn't care about us. We briefly dipped our toe in that pool when we talked about God's goodness, and we talked about the fact that it's almost impossible for someone who gives themselves over to that idea to maintain any sort of rational sanity, that there is a good who's all-powerful, he knows everything, but he's not good. Very few people go that direction. Maybe you could just end up saying he's not all powerful. He's really powerful. He's really strong, certainly stronger than us, but he just can't do everything. There are things out there that limit him and constrain him, and he's doing the best he can with essentially what he has to work with. That's a difficult not to cut through. None of those options are really satisfactory. We saw a few weeks ago, he is good. The Bible is so clear that God is good. And we could spend a Sunday talking about his omniscience, the fact that he knows 
everything. This morning, our focus is on his power. And what I simply want you to understand is that God's power, his omnipotence, the fact that he's the almighty, is not just something we've dreamed up. It's not just something we believe because it fits with our worldview. It's something we believe because we see it in the scriptures. It's undeniable. So our job is not to judge God by our own perceptions and our own abilities to sort of piece things together in life. Our job is to look at the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures tell us about God? How does he reveal himself to us? And he reveals himself as powerful, primarily in two ways. And I want you to see these two ways this morning. Number one, God's power is seen in creation. When you look at the fact that God is the creator, you come away understanding he is powerful. He's the almighty. He's omnipotent. The book of Genesis, chapter one, look at the first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. You can go back and look at ancient cultures. Almost all of them have a creation story, or what scholars would call a creation myth. There's a lot of similarities between these stories. This story, the first five verses and what follows, stand out as a little bit different. Some of the differences in the the creation story here. God is creating everything from nothing. In many of the other creation stories, God starts with something. And here he starts with nothing. And then he simply speaks. He uses words to create. He simply says it and it happens. And in this creation story, you probably never really noticed this, there is no opposition to God creating. There are no roadblocks that pop up. And when you read other ancient creation stories, there's all sorts of problems. There's all sorts of conflict. There's all sorts of opposition standing in the God's way as they create everything. There's no opposition here. He simply says it and it happens. And when it happens, it's good. It's not bad, it's not chaotic, it's not out of control, it's good. And when you read through Genesis 1, you come away saying, that's the Almighty. He's all-powerful. He simply says it, and it comes into being out of nothing. That kind of God can do anything. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. We read Isaiah 40 earlier. Back up a few verses and look what the prophet says in Isaiah 40 verse 25 and 26 to whom will you compare me that I should be like him says the holy one lift up your eyes on high and see who created these he who brings out their host by number calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing he's talking about the stars he says just go out at night and look at the stars Get a telescope. Look at the images we get from Hubble. And just look at the vastness of the universe and all the stars and all the galaxies and all their glory and understand that he called them into existence, that he knows all of their names, and that none of them are missing because he upholds it. He's 
powerful. The book of Hebrews says it like this, speaking about Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You and I sit in this room this morning in a padded chair, maybe a little bit too cool for you. I think it's just about right. Reasonably comfortable, clothed. We take a lot of things for granted including the fact that every moment of our existence, Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He created it all. He sustains it all. He upholds it all. He's powerful. And when you just think about creation, the act of creation and the continuing of creation, you're reminded God is powerful. So that's the first place you see it. The second place you see it is in salvation. You see it in salvation. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he did it with his arm. Look what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's saying to his people, I'm going to save you from an impossible situation, and I can do it. I'm up to the task. I'm going to use my outstretched arm. My power will be enough. You see God's power in salvation. That same power that saved his people from slavery in Egypt is the same power that was at work when Mary humbly asked, how in the world am I going to conceive being a virgin? The power of the Most High will overshadow you. God will create life out of nothing. It's the same power that was at work in Jesus when he taught and he went from town to town, village to village, synagogue to synagogue, and people said, that man teaches with authority. He teaches with power. It's the same power. It's the same power at work when Jesus feeds a multitude of people with a lunchable. It's his power at work. It's the same power that's at work when Jesus dies on the cross, taking our sin and our judgment and our punishment on himself. And it's the same power that raises Jesus from the dead three days later. It's the same power that the Holy Spirit breathes into your dead soul when he makes you alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. The only explanation for that is God's power. You see God's power in salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, There is power in that message. When we sing about it in this room, and when someone stands up here and talks about the good news or the gospel of Jesus, that's a powerful message. 
when you go to your workplace or you go to your home and you share that with your coworkers or you share that with your kids or you share that with your parents, that's a message that has power. And Paul says it has power for salvation. The message has power. He says there's power in that for salvation for everyone who believes. What is it that you're supposed to believe? Well, you need to agree with God about who he is and what he's like. You're not dreaming up your own version of God, but you're humbly coming to the Scriptures and saying, God, you tell me what you're like. I'll, I'll believe it. And you're believing it when the Bible says you have a problem called sin that separates you from God. You're believing the Bible when it says God sent his son to die your death and to take your punishment. On the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins. You believe that. You believe that God raised him from the dead. And you believe that God has promised life to his people. Paul says he's not ashamed of that message, that gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look, I know these two ideas are not rocket science. You see God's power in creation and you see it in salvation. This is theology 101. If you don't lay this foundation in your mind and your heart, you have absolutely nothing upon which to build. And it's why it's not a waste of time for you and I to teach our children songs like this one. Our God, God is, is so big, so strong, strong and so, so mighty, dear. Nothing my God cannot do. <laughs> my God is so big, so, so strong and so mighty. Nothing my God cannot do. Mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his, Lord too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. You can't skip the basics. You cannot skip it. And you can't listen to that and say, oh, that's cutesy. We're talking, when we teach our kids those songs, we're talking about one of the most important central ideas that you've got to nail down in your mind and in your heart as you think about who God is. If you don't understand his power, you have no foundation for understanding anything about who he is. You see it in creation. You see it in salvation. And when you see it, it changes you. It changes you. How should we live? One last question. How should we live in light of God's power? What should change in us? Just a few, a few thoughts. Number one, we should fear God. We should fear him. Fear of God in the Bible is always connected to worship of God. Those two issues always go together. And when you lose one, you lose the other. Typically, you lose fear first and worship follows. You see this in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 17. It's talking about the people who had been sent into exile for their rebellion. It says, to this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. That's a problem. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant, and he commanded them, 
You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. He's powerful. His arm is strong. He has created you and saved you by His power. You should fear Him. When you fear Him, you worship Him. Secondly, we should pray to God. We should pray to God. One of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. The prophet says this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. I think if you and I really believed that, we would pray more. I think if we really deep down in our bones learned that kindergarten song about my God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I think if we really had that drilled deep down in our souls, we would pray more than we do. If we really believed nothing is too hard for the one who created everything and who saves his people by his arm. When you take your fears and your anxieties and your troubles and your worries and your problems to God, you're not bothering God. Sometimes people think they're bothering God, they're annoying God. You're not doing that. When you take all of those things to God, you're not arm-twisting God. You're not trying to get him to buy into doing things your way. You're simply taking all of your problems to the one who can handle them, the one who has all power. Look, when you're a child and you're at home and you're trying to open the pickle jar or the salsa jar, you don't look for your little brother to help you. You go up the food chain. I need mom. I need dad. I need help. And that's what you're doing when you pray. You're not going to advise God about how we ought to govern the universe. You're simply going to him saying, God, I got some stuff in my life. I don't know what to do. I can't handle it. This is beyond me, but it's not beyond you. And I'm going to trust in your power. So we're going to fear God. We're going to pray to God. Number three, we believe the gospel. We believe the good news. If we see his power in salvation... One of the things that changes us in us is that we believe the gospel. I love the hope of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What is it that you lack for life and godliness? Peter says nothing. Because by his power, his divine power, he has granted you everything that you need for life and godliness. Believe it. He sent his son to die for your sins. He sent his spirit to open your blind eyes to the truth. He's given you his word so that you know who he is and what he's like. You're not left to grope around and wonder and try to dream up your own ideas about God. He's given you church, a community of people to walk alongside you in life, to encourage you. 
His divine power has given us everything, all things that pertain to life and to godliness. We believe it. We believe it.